Welcome, everybody. Today is the cure to loneliness. Well, according to the experts, we better figure out a cure to this loneliness situation, and we better figure it out real soon. Because according to them, we are headed straight for a cliff. So today is all about, is there a cure? What does the Bible have to say about that? What is the foundational problem with all of our disconnection that is being so tied to many of our illnesses in today? But whether it's anxiety or depression or physical pain, so much of this seems to be tied to this one issue, and that is loneliness or disconnection. And we have to ask ourselves this question. Is there something about humanity, like we're so strongly inclined towards something that it's leading us towards disconnection? And is there something in this letter to the Colossians that we can learn? Because it says in Colossians 1.17 that in him, speaking of Jesus, Jesus holds everything together. So he is the connection. So is there something about human nature that is leading us towards disconnection? And can we learn something from Jesus Christ that leads us towards connection and then resolves many of these rippled ideas and problems and things that are going on in the world that is causing us so much pain and causing the experts to be so alarmed at what is taking place? All of this is captured in one word, and that one word is power. Power. Look what it says in Colossians 2.15. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So power is bad. Power, according to this, needs to be disarmed. But wait a minute, wait a minute. What is interesting about that is in chapter one, Paul tells us that he's constantly praying for something for these people who are followers of Christ in this town of Colossae. He said, I keep praying. I'm strenuously praying. I'm continuously praying. Like he really gets into it. And he says this, I am praying, Colossians 1.11, that you would be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. So power is bad and Jesus is disarming the power. But wait a minute. Power is good and we need it. And Paul's praying for us to have this power like all the time. Matter of fact, Luke 24, 49 says, Jesus speaking, stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. So power needs to be disarmed and power needs to clothe us. Power is bad and power is good. Jesus says in the beginning of the book of Acts, he says, you will receive power. And then we read later over and over again that they did receive power. Matter of fact, we're told in Acts chapter 4 that they received great power. Not just any power, but great power. Okay, so there's two types of powers. There's a good power and there's a bad power. There's a power that connects us, the way of Christ, and there's a power that disconnects us, this false power, this bad power. And here's the thing I want you to really meditate on in this message today. One thing I'd like you to walk away from today's message is this. True power is granted, not grabbed. I want to say that again. True power is granted. It is never grabbed. Genesis chapter 1 through 11 uh, is a prologue to the entire Bible. It's telling us the problems with human nature that will be visited upon for the rest of the Bible. Like 
Okay, here's the problem, and the rest of the Bible is the solution towards the problem that is set up for us in those first 11 chapters. Now, there's three major events that go on. Adam and Eve and their two sons, Cain and Abel, that's the first. The flood is the second, and Babel is the third. Each one of these is a power grab. It's bad power. In each one of these, the human tendency is to grab power. So we see Cain gets upset. How is he going to solve his problem? God says, hey, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't grab power. And instead, he grabs power. He uses might. He uses power. He kills his brother Abel to solve his problem. And it does not work. Then after we see that happen, we see a verbal power grab by what the line of Cain talks about. Wait, I'm going to get excessive revenge. If you do this to me, so there's verbal coercive power. So there's a power grab, there's a verbal power grab, and finally there's a sexual power grab in the line of Cain. We have polygamy for the first time. Then you get to the flood of Noah. So if you power grab, power grab, power grab on a physical level, a verbal level, and a sexual level, then what you have is the whole world is filled with blood and violence. That's the story once you get to the flood. This makes total sense. It makes total, complete sense. Now the whole world is flooded. And then finally, you get to Babel. And you have coercive uniformity. Like, I am going to force you to think and act and to believe in a certain way. You must do this. So another power grab. It's by force that you're going to have to do this. This false power leads us to a severe disconnection with God, ourselves, and with others. Now, the question is, is that true? What the Bible sets up for us in the first 11 chapters, is that true? Can it be proven? Is Jesus Christ, is his way the only way to truth and life? Now, that's the question I would be asking myself. Now, there are many places you can go to verify what Jesus Christ said and did to be to be completely true. There are a lot of places you can go, but here's one good place you could go. You could go to Dasher Keltner's book, The Power Paradox. And what he says in this book is that much of Western thinking on power has been shaped by Machiavelli's The Prince, where he said it's better to be feared than to be loved, that power is to be taken and power is to be grabbed. And what he juxtaposes in this book is... This idea between bad power and good power, or what he calls hard power and soft power, hard power is by might, it's by coercion, and it's by grabbing it. Soft power is through sharing ideas, listening, and giving respect. Now, here is something extremely important. He cites a study, I just simply want to read this to you. It covers, as you'll see, 323 opposition movements. Here we go. One recent study examined 323 opposition movements from 1900 to 2006 in places ranging from East Timor to countries of the former Soviet bloc. Some of these movements used the tactics of coercive force, bombs, assassinations, beheadings, torture, and civilian killings. Others relied on non-violent tactics, marches, vigils, petitions, and boycotts. The latter were, check this out, twice as likely, 53% versus 26%, to 
to lead to achieving gains in political power, winning broad support from citizens, and contributing to the fall of oppressive regimes. Now, in the power paradox, a number of things are outlined here. Here is what we are truly after, true power. This is what true power is, not what false power is. Five things, enthusiasm. That means to reach out to other people, even people who are on a different side from you, that you are enthusiastic and that you reach out. That's true power. False power pulls, polarizes. Number two, kindness. Kindness is the desire to cooperate, to share, and and to give to other people. Here's the third thing, focus. Focus on what? Shared goals. Focus on a win-win situation, not a win-lose situation. Number four, calmness. You stay calm and you listen to other perspectives. Fifth and final one is openness, that you're open to other people's ideas and feelings. Now, a couple more points here about power. A lack of power leads to poor health. People who don't have power suffer from all kinds of problems in health, whether it's anxiety, depression, heart disease, you can't sleep at night. All of these are a result of the lack of power. We actually have to have power, but not false power. We have to have real power. Let me continue. True power is a state of mind. When I read that, that he said is through all of his studies that true power is a state of mind, I immediately thought of what Paul says in Philippians. Let this mind be in you that is in Christ Jesus. It's a state of mind. So in other words, it's not your bank account that gives you power. It's not your position that gives you power. It's none of the, it's not your might, your strength, your physical strength, or your intellectual abilities to destroy somebody else verbally. It's none of those things. That power is a state of mind. What is that state of mind? The desire to make other people's lives better, to be a contributing force for good in society, that every single one of us can do these things I mentioned a moment ago. We can reach out to others. We can be kind. We can create win-win situations, not win-lose situations. We don't have to vilify or destroy other people. We don't have to power up on other people. That's true power. The other power is false power, which we're really good at. We have a strong human tendency for. That's what the opening 11 chapters of the Bible are all about. And it leads us to anxiety, depression, frustration, meaninglessness, and emptiness. Scientifically true is what Keltner is saying. Finally, true power is contagious. They asked Desmond Tutu, how did you, how did you help bring down apartheid in South Africa? And he said, small actions by millions of people. Small actions by millions of people. That's the way of Jesus Christ. It's contagious. It is proven, scientifically proven, that when you are generous and kind and patient and you listen and you don't vilify and you don't bring down the other side, which which we see this constantly. I just was watching early this morning on the news they were reporting on some terrible thing that took place and they were talking about this is so, and they were vilifying the other side, right? And they were talking about how the other side does nothing but vilify and instill fear and they were saying how wrong it is and they were showing it was wrong by vilifying the other side. We, we I mean, we're so caught up, it's so 
It's so human to us. It's so much a human nature, instinctive to us, that even when we're coming against it, we're coming against it by doing the very thing that we're saying we shouldn't do. So this is so deeply ingrained in our human nature, but Christ shows us a better way. Power is found in everyday actions. Let me give you some of his points about power. Enduring power comes from empathy. How are you good at you at empathy? People who have false power have a hard time empathizing with other people. So when somebody presents an opinion, an idea that is polar opposite to you, do you empathize with them or do you just want to tear them apart? Enduring power comes from giving. Enduring power comes from expressing gratitude, thankfulness. We live in a world that is frustrated. Enduring power comes from being a person who is grateful and thankful. Enduring power comes from telling stories that unite. Are you in the practice of telling stories that unite? Are you in the practice of doing social media, listening, whatever, news, blah, 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 stories that unite or stories that divide? Seems to me that most of the stories that I hear about out there in the airwaves are all division stories, not uniting stories. Fake power, false power, won't work kind of power. Stress defines the experience of powerlessness. Powerlessness undermines the ability to contribute to society. Powerlessness causes poor health. Let's consider Colossians chapter 2, verses 9 to 12. For in Christ... All the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. That's that's making us think of the temple. That's what they thought when they read that because that's where God's presence was. What was the temple? A total connection between heaven and earth. Okay, that's what Jesus, he brings together. False power disconnects, true power reconnects. Verse 10, and in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him, you are also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. Now, obviously, he's talking about circumcision constantly here. There's three times in just a couple of sentences. Why? Well, when did circumcision, like when do we see it introduced in the Bible? Right after the abuse of Hagar. Abraham and Sarah had a problem. How would they solve their problem? By true power or false power? Would they be granted power or would they grab power? They grabbed it because that's human nature, even Abraham and Sarah. So they took what was widely accepted in their community. Nobody would have ever said it wrong. There's no reason for it to be wrong. They took their slave, Hagar, the Egyptian slave, and they forced her to have sex with Abraham so that they could have a child. A child is what they wanted. So sexual abuse. God is saying that sexual abuse is wrong. Both the victim and the abuser suffer in this. The victim suffers immediately. Their life is wrecked immediately. The abuser, it's a slow process, but they end up being emptied out, frustrated, lonely, because they can never have their thirst quenched for the grabbing, grabbing, grabbing of powers. This is why the only the way of Christ Jesus works. So later on, when you read in the book of Leviticus, over 30 times that you should love the stranger. I think, if I remember correctly, only one time love your neighbor, that's the person like you, love the stranger, the person not like you, the Hebrew word for stranger is Hagar. Abraham and Sarah abused Hagar. 
And the Hebrew word for showing love, not abuse, not marine power grabbing, is Hagar. Love the Hagar. Love the Hagar. Love the Hagar. Don't grab power. Don't vilify. Don't abuse. That is what is going on. And then finally, the verses wrap up in verse 12 by saying this, And having been buried with him in baptism, in which you are also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. What is baptism about here? Baptism is... Putting to death false power, not the way of Jesus. That's not the way of Jesus. You're putting that to death. That's our human nature. Clearly, we're power grabbers. <laughs> that doesn't take a, 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 a genius to figure that out, right? We are power grabbers by nature and instead live to the way of Christ because that is the way that actually works. And that is what the power doc scientifically proves and shows repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly. The way of Jesus Christ works. Matter of fact, it would seem as if the way of Jesus Christ is the only way to truth and life. That almost seems like words from scripture that Jesus might say. It is the only way that works. And it is historically and scientifically able to be proven. Baptism, put to death, do the right thing. So let me wrap it up by telling you a quick story. And then we're going to see a um, a part of the interview that I did with Dr. Lemke, which is Excellent. So I'm on the bike path. I'm out on the bike path on a regular basis because I sold my car at the beginning of the pandemic and I got an electric bike. And so I'm out there on, on the bike path bike and, 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 and somebody pulled up a guy pulled up beside me. I was at a stoplight and he said, Hey, how fast will that go? And so, you know, there's always something, there's all these, you know, thoughts you have going through your head. And so I'm thinking to myself, he's asking how fast it'll go. I'm thinking, you know, I don't like to ride my, my electric bike too fast on the bike path. You know, there's these signs all over the bike path that say, slow down and be kind. And, you know, you got the super bikers out there that go fast and, uh, the super bikers actually go faster than me. My, you know, my bike can go 27 miles an hour, but I never ride it more than 20 miles an hour on the bike path. And the super bikers pass me all the time. It makes them feel good. And I, you know, I try to make people feel good, but they're flying. And so I said, and I says, well, you know, I, I go about 20 miles an hour on the path as a maximum speed. I won't go faster than that. He says, and I said, but, 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 you know, I can, if I open it up, I get out on the street, I can get this thing up to 27 miles an hour. And he said back at that, he said, I'm going to do everything in my power to get you banned from the bike path. Now. What was my immediate reaction to that? Immediately, what ran through my head real quick was I wanted to power up. I wanted to immediately, I felt it, man, it was so strong. I wanted to lean closer to him. I wanted to narrow my brow and I wanted to say, you know, I, I just, it was so strong. Now, maybe, maybe I was so inclined to do that because this gentleman was about five foot five, 140 pounds and about 75 years old. So maybe that's what kind of encouraged that power up false power mode. But instead of doing that, I just kind of backed down. I calmed my voice and I just said, why? Why do you, because he got real personal, you banned from the path. I said, why, why do you, why do you want to do that? And you know what? He calmed down and he told me a story. He's been in two wrecks, both with electric bikes, e-bikes. He didn't realize they could go that fast and he would pass somebody on the, on the path and twice huge wrecks. So he had a personal thing. Now, if we'll just power down or move away from false power and choose true power and we'll say to people why and seek to understand rather than to respond and to vilify, we might find there's good personal reasons 
why people sometimes come across such a strong and difficult way. We got to do that now. Dr. Lemke, she's going to say in this interview today and, and, and is really excellent. She just does a, a great job with this. She's going to talk about pro-social shame and how we so desperately need spaces in our world where people can be broken and still know that there is a better way. So watch this. I think it's important to acknowledge that shame has an important pro-social function, which is to say, shame is the emotion we experience when we deviate from group norms or group expectations. It's a very powerful emotion, and it's one that people who work hard to avoid, mm -hmm. right? Um, and again, our avoidance of that shame is what motivates us to do the things that our community um, has said it values. And without that, you know, things would be chaos, right? So I think it's really important to acknowledge that, that shame has a pro-social function and a highly adaptive function. The problem is that if when people deviate from whatever the social norm or expectation is and they experience shame, if there's no path to walk to make amends, if people are just shunned from that community, then shame is no longer pro-social because there's no way to make up for having, uh, you know, having transgressed, so to speak. But we have, this is happening all the time, you know, in the modern world, including in churches where people are not going to tell the truth because they, they know that if they were to do that, they would essentially be shunned by that community or there would be no way to kind of make it up. So this is, I think, an important thing when we're thinking about building healthy and healing communities. How can we make a space for people to admit wrongdoing? to experience shame, which is the source of motivation, to avoid that wrongdoing going forward and not feel like they have to hide or lie or risk being shunned. That's really, really key because I do believe that religion, you know, is born of the acknowledgement of our brokenness and our need for each other to heal together and a place where we can come and be beloved despite being broken. But when communities become a place where we have to hide our brokenness and pretend that everything's great and we're perfect, then those are no longer healing communities because then people will hide, you know, their problems and they will hide their addictions and all of that. There are so many spaces now in the modern world where people have to show up to impress, yeah. right? Yeah. And there are so few spaces where people can just show up and be like, I'm feeling really messed up, or I did really mess up, or I'm thinking about messing up, <laughs> or whatever version that is. But people are so hungry for that, and yet there are so few outlets for that. You know, whether it's in schools or, or religious organizations or professional organizations, like for me personally, you know, I don't generally like to go to professional doctor's meetings because it's a lot of grandstanding. You know, people, I did this great thing. One of the reasons I was really drawn to the world of, um, you know, addiction medicine doctors is because a lot of docs in recovery 
work in addiction medicine. And you'd go to these meetings, people, yeah, you know, I, I'm, I'm an alcoholic, right? And this is, this is, was my life before I got, and it was like so refreshing. I was like, I can't, I can't believe these doctors in this professional setting with other doctors are, you know, comfortable talking about that. And that's really informed, you know, that informed my book where I was open about some of my own compulsive overconsumption. It really informs my teaching of fellows and residents. I learned so much more from my mistakes practicing medicine than I ever did from my successes. So I share those mistakes and it has a number, it works on a number of different levels. It works because, well, you just learn a lot from mistakes, right? But it also works like, hey, like this doctor who's a full professor here at Stanford, like she like she had some serious mess ups, right? I guess, it, I guess my mess ups, I don't have to hide them either. Dr. Lemke has been so wonderful in these interview pieces that we have shown. I highly recommend her book, Dopamine Nation. What she says is our world desperately needs human beings, us, curing our loneliness, right? That's what we're about today. Finding connection, true connection. Our world is so hungry for this. We all need it so desperately. We all basically need a Christ-like community. And I want to invite you to be a part of helping us build a Christ-like community. Our city is so ready for this. That's my message next week. Our city is so ready for this. You know what? I can understand when people tell me, I don't believe in the Bible because there's so much distortion in the Bible. I can understand when people tell me, I don't want to go to church because there are so many stories about how churches have done harm. We seldom hear the stories, though there's dozens and millions of them, right? So many of them about how the church is making a difference in the world. But also when it comes to the brokenness of our lives, our addictions, our flaws. When somebody says to me, I'm addicted to stuff, I'm like, I can totally understand that. Because it's so readily available. It's right there on our phones. I'm addicted to porn. I can totally understand that. It's so readily accessible. I'm addicted to alcohol. I'm addicted to drugs. I'm addicted to gambling. That makes sense. It's just right at our fingertips. It's right there. We're broken. We're flawed. It makes sense. But there is a better way. And we don't have to give in to false power. We don't have to vilify other people who have different opinions or of different addictions. We can simply say, yes, we're all broken together, but there is a better way. It is the way of Christ. There's a way of truth and there is a way of life. I want to build, I want to be a part of a community like that because our world is so hungry, so thirsty for it, to end this disconnection and this loneliness. Would you please consider hopping in with me and together let's build it. Next week, our city is so ready. I have so much to say on this, so much to say. But for now, will you please join me in praying the serenity prayer together? God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference.